0: We're going to transition to capacity building and collaboration. So, Worth, the chapter, for those of you who read it, it's not a very good chapter. He, he sort of wanders and he's vague and he's abstract about it, and so I want to try and take the rest of today and on Thursday to really <coughs> begin to uh, help you get a, a better understanding of what capacity building is what does it mean to build the capacity of your organization. And I want to start by thinking about, on an individual level, who are some high-capacity people that you know, a very High performing people Like people who just They amaze They can get so much done Like who are some people That you know That would be characterized As high capacity My mom Your mom
1: In what way My mom is a mother Of seven kids Uh huh And she works Almost like twelve hours a day Uh huh And is able to manage Just pretty much everything So what she's able To accomplish in a day so Is phenomenal she, I mean she fascinates me On a regular basis so Uh huh I would kind of see her as A high
0: capacity person, yeah. The other people yeah. There's this guy named Wes Bates. Uh-huh. I don't know if anybody knows him. He's a senior here. Um I met him at this entrepreneurship pitch night. Uh-huh. And he is involved with like every local business here. But like, uh-huh. he has this amazing network. He knows people all over the US and, and it seems like he's doing work for them. Uh-huh. And when I met him, he asked me to go for a run at like six thirty in the uh-huh. morning the next day. And I feel like he just has like he's probably awake doing work from like six thirty AM to sure. so, like eleven PM. So unlimited energy. And, yeah, no, that's a good... Any other example? Yeah. Uh,
2: my friend Maggie is the president of IU Panhellenic. Uh-huh.
3: And so she is constantly in meetings with the Office of Student Life and Learning. She worked, has to work with, like, the Dean of Students. And, like, I
0: don't know how she does all of it. So you know, he <laughs> probably in some way knows a high-capacity individual or a high-performer. In some ways, like, what are what are characteristics of these high-performing people? Like... They don't need much sleep. What other characteristics are distinctive of of these people? If you looked into their life, what what are things associated with being a high capacity person?
1: Very social. Very social? Uh, uh, I interact with different people because they understand the importance of network okay
0: so they're relational people other oh, yeah
2: they seem engaged in what they're doing I oh, there's
3: okay. a difference between people who are busy and they kind of wear that busyness uh-huh. as a badge of like oh like I'm doing this and doing this but mm-hmm. the high capacity people it's almost like you don't even realize how busy yeah. they are you
1: kind of walk with them even for a day. Sure. Oh my gosh. I mean, there's a, a passion yeah. versus a drudgery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I see a large portion of optimism. Mm-hmm. At times, you feel like when things start to get overwhelming, you need that optimism to kind of... Uh-huh. motivated to continue sure help you do what you do.
0: So there's positive, optimistic, hopeful. Steena? I would say they're very organized. Okay,
3: okay. So they just have
0: a lot to handle, so they have to, and very good at time management. Time management. Sometimes. Yeah. No, see, so these are all very good characteristics, and you consistently see that amongst these people. Now, when you see these people, do they, you aspire to be a high-performing person? Like, is that an attractive quality, or is that an overwhelming quality like what's your your general sense is that something like when you see
1: those people are you like i'd like to do that what's your sense yeah uh, it's attractive mainly because they get a lot and from my perspective i see the outcome and what comes from working hard and being a higher person I would almost definitely consider it as a, as a positive. Okay. Yeah, they show. It's something that I
4: would aspire to, do, but I would have to find it on a level, for that works for me,
0: I can Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I would say that the reason, the, the difference in many ways between a high-performing person and a busy person, like someone who's just like, oh, I is um, that there's a, a mission or a focus to their activity. Like, they actually know where they're going. They're knowing what they want to accomplish. And so they're willing to pour all this energy and resource into seeing that vision become a reality. Whereas if you're just sort of like, I just want to graduate and you don't really know why <coughs> and then you got to do these extracurricular things, like, it's, it's hard to become a high-performing person if you don't have a clear vision or mission of what you're wanting to do. Like, whereas if you talk to a student who wants to go to med school and that's their, their focus, then you see them just doing all this stuff, and not just in their academics but then maybe health-wise, they're, they're staying in shape and they're doing exercise and stuff. And One thing I learned going here is
2: that
1: when it comes to education or anything, like a passion, some people see education as an obligation, but really it's an opportunity. And i change changed my mindset to think that every day I'm working towards something that I want to be. And I don't just go to school just to go. It's just not that. It's more like,
3: oh, if I want to be manager
5: of the arts, this is my job now,
0: mm-hmm. so I can, you know I can go towards my career in the future. Sure. So it's, it's your your pers- you know people could be at IU
1: doing the same thing but have very different perspectives on it. Yeah. Uh, I could also see a, a lot of IU students being high <coughs> performing people. Like she said, I mean, it's not really it wasn't an obligation. You know, we didn't have to go to college. Mm-hmm. Probably to a lot of people back home or people who didn't go to college, they see a lot of college students being high high Yeah. Exactly. People's so it's own. relative. to yeah. So. I I think we can all, I mean, of course we have different levels, capacity uh-huh. of uh, high performance, but to me personally, I kind of see majority of IU students, I mean, because it's not easy being sure. a college student, so I would see us all as being high performance. Relative to the people who didn't go to college. All right, yeah, Brandon.
6: I think there's a fine line, especially coming to college and being involved in things as well as to have an education because... There's a lot of pressure to be able to get jobs, a lot of pressure to be able to put things on your resume mm-hmm. and everything is beyond there. and. And some people do it just to get the name out there uh-huh. and just check things off yeah. and actually don't call <coughs> themselves and what they're actually doing and getting things out of it. Mm-hmm. And same thing with going to class, you know? Some people just go through the motions Yeah, and just check off things and just want to get an A or or work with other people so they can bounce off the things that are going on through there. So I think there's a fine line and they brag about it. That's uh-huh. the biggest thing is they say, oh, I'm doing this, 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 this. Yeah, yeah. But really they're not getting the material or they're not getting experience out of it. But the high-performing person isn't talking highly about everything that they're doing, but they're really talking about the successes that they're doing and the, and the experience that they're getting to be able to improve what you are involved with sure. and everything. And that's, that's I think, a fine line that people do not hit upon as best as we hope to, sure. or at
0: least yeah. aspire to be. Well, and so, and that's why, and I would say the distinction between busyness and high performing or high capacity, because the busy person likes to brag about all the different things they're doing and even kind of moan about it. Like there's this sort of self-torture, like, ah. but the high capacity person doesn't even have time to sit down and talk to you, like try and brag about listening. You just sort of watch them and You're like, man, that guy, that girl is just doing all these kinds of things and they're pulling off these large-scale events and accomplishing stuff and you just sort of see them tackling things. And then, move, you know, and they're moving on versus sort of resting on their laurels. And so I, I use the example of individual to highlight also, you know, that this relates to organizations as well. So you have high-performing organizations, high-capacity organizations, and you also have low-capacity organizations, low-performing organizations. And they probably would parallel what you're saying. Like, some of the low-performing organizations are like, look at all these things we got to do. And, you know, and they're sort of like wallowing in all this. And they're really, they don't really get much done. And then the high-performing Organizations are expanding and going to scale, and like they just keep bounding in successes. And and a lot of it relates to the capacity. And I want to break down capacity. And part of it is a couple weeks ago we talked about organizational performance versus program effectiveness. And when we talk about the capacity of an organization, it relates to the organizational performance. So it's not like individual programs, but it's the capacity of the organization. Like what is the organization capable of? sustaining and doing so is it a high capacity organization? Like is it is it positioned for growth and expansion, or is it a low capacity organization where it's about to crumble and, and fall under its supports? And so thinking when we're talking about capacity, we're thinking about the whole organization with regards to low capacity organizations. And this is a favorite topic of mine, or a, more of a grievance of mine, is these low capacity organizations. Can you guys think of any organizations that are just known to be low capacity organizations like low function? It's painful to try and do any type of interaction with them. Can you think of just in your own experience where you're like, yeah, this organization just, yeah. I don't know if you can call it low capacity, but the Red Cross. The Red Cross, in what way, like? You see, like personally, I was affected by Hurricane Sandy. Uh huh. And the relief that they sent, like the amount of millions of dollars I was poured yeah. to them, and then they still have not um, done what they said they would. Ah, interesting. Okay, so it's a huge organization, but their systems got very efficient, so yeah, Eric. Let's say the DMV. Okay. I think like the only two times I've been there, it was like the worst experience of my
1: life. <laughs> it took
0: like an hour or two. No matter, any, any state better. you go, any any city, any county, you go to the DMV or the BMV as it is here in Indiana, it would fit the bill of being a low capacity organization. So yeah, great.
1: I can't speak for all the YMCA's, but... Uh, the for over the summer, was just bad service in general. They didn't provide a lot of utilities for the kids like or programs, so I just kind of had to think off my feet, kind of entertain them and get them engaged, so I just kind of felt like they were slow. The, yeah, in yeah. Of that. So. Yeah, my kids are doing swimming lessons,
0: and they actually are going to go, they were going to go do it at the the Northwire. Like I caught up to sign them up for a swimming, they said, oh, well, they need to be registered. And I said, well, yeah, I want to register them to get swimming lessons. And they said, well, you need to come up and fill out the paperwork before they can get registered. And we live in South Bloomington, and I was like, well, can I just... Register them on the spot when we show up for our first lesson. They're like, well, no, you need to come up and do it And I was like, well, what extra information? Like, why can't I just do it the day of and he's like, well I don't really know why but you just can't And so I was like, like I will make a trip all the way up there if you really need me to But I'm having a hard time understanding why I can't just do it the same day I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna be filling out a piece of paper. He's like, yeah, you're kind of right I don't I don't know why you need to come up and so, but it was just their systems were not very well developed or thought through. When you think about <coughs> these low performing organizations or low capacity organizations, what are some sort of common characteristics of them? Like we talk about systems not being efficient. Yeah. Like poor management. Poor management, yeah. When you say poor management, what do you
7: mean? Like their managers or like what you just said, their managers are kind of confused, they already can't give you a clear explanation
1: uh-huh. why
7: they're following
0: circles or certain system. Yeah, so they're not like fully vested in what's going on
2: or thinking
1: through DMN. I was basically going to say what
5: he said, that like people don't know why.
2: Uh-huh, yeah. Um, they might be understaffed or oh, okay. or they lack a strong volunteer
1: base. Yeah. So it might take you forever to just deal with them. So the people are overworked, they've overcommitted, and yeah. they're doing that. Uh, yeah lack of
0: communication okay yeah internally and then turn, I mean sometimes I go to the Y and I want to go swim and the pool will be closed and I'll be like, "Wait, why is it closed?" And they said, "Well, we changed our schedule, and, and so you know, because I I look at the schedule. There'd be a schedule on the pools open when it's open swim and when it's team swim, and so I would make sure to go there. And I'm like, "Well, but online it says it's open." And they're like, "Oh, well, yeah, we changed our schedule, and so but the communication didn't happen to the rest of the people." But and I say all this in the context, of you want to be a high capacity organization, but nonprofits in particular are known for suffering from being low capacity or low performing. And so then if you want to make your organization a more high capacity organization, it's good to know sort of what you don't want to be. And even if you think about it, your experience of interacting with a low capacity organization is really frustrating. You don't really have a very high opinion of it. And the thought of providing funding or volunteering or sort of being, becoming involved diminishes if the organization has a reputation of being a low capacity, low performing organization. And so, if you want to have a successful organization and recruit volunteers and recruit funding, it's important to sort of be thinking through well, what's our functioning capacity of our organization. And, you know, in some ways, it could be we're over committing or we're overselling and maybe we need to scale back so that we actually maybe get less done, but the stuff that we do do, we do at a really high capacity. And then we can expand from there. I guess what I would say is under what circumstances, like, why would an organization maybe say, okay, we're just going to be a low-capacity organization or a small mom pop shop type of thing. Under what circumstances would it be where you just want to keep it at a low capacity? Yeah. They lack vision. Okay, yeah. So those would be reasons why they would have um, you know, a very high capacity. Maddie?
4: If it's a local issue.
0: Okay. So if it's a local or even a short-term issue, it's like we don't need to build up the state infrastructure. We can just keep it keep it small. Yeah.
3: You're not losing a sufficient amount of business and you're still like, making money. the YMCA, even if they're under capacity, <laughs> and
0: people still go. I see. So like... Like you haven't
1: stopped going. Even
0: yeah. Like. <laughs> so so people, people put up with you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was a part of my neighborhood association and they had relatively little responsibilities and so there was, and, and, but there's one person on the board who really wanted to like amp it up and make this, make it this really professional thing. I was like, it's a neighborhood association. I mean, it's, we just sort of make sure we all know each other and if someone moves into the neighborhood, they can be welcomed. The goals or aspirations of this association are pretty small to begin with and we don't need to pretend like we're something bigger, than we're not. The main thing would be making sure that your capacity is commensurate with your mission and your vision. Again, it's, it's thinking through the scope and the scale of your organization and making sure that your capacity can match that. Or making sure that you have a plan for how to build your capacity to match your mission and vision. The thought is that if you're starting an organization, that you have a clear mission and vision. You actually have a passion. And then making sure, okay, what are the resources I'm going to need to see that mission become a reality. To see the vision become a reality. And so capacity really is dependent on your mission. Like, what are you actually trying to accomplish? And then what are the things you need? And so in terms of what is capacity basic definition and I think this is in work is that it's the resources, systems and structures needed to get things done and so when we say resources, what are the different types of resources that you can think of that an organization would need? Basic material resources.
7: Okay, like in what way? Maybe with like education-based nonprofits, uh-huh. just like the classroom tool. Okay. okay. All of your things that are more minor, but you need to fulfill the mission.
0: The materials and the facilities. Uh, sure. Oh The rooms we right The finances. Okay, the money to mm-hmm. do it. The people. The people, the volunteers, the <laughs> staff. I
6: think another thing that goes with that materials is computers.
0: Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, so not only the, the hardware, but then or the software and then the connectivity to it. And you think about, it, like, these, what's interesting is, like, nonprofits, again, they're notorious for being low capacity because they do bare bones budgets. And so, like, they'll be working on computers that are eight years old and, like, Windows XP and they have not dial-up connection, but almost equivalent to dial-up connection. Or like the people are going to the local library to get their internet connection because their nonprofit can't afford to pay for full-time internet. And so they sort of scrape along, and that all those things sort of cut into their productivity and their capacity.
1: Yeah, I was that a question? Yeah. So- I mean, in your own opinion, do you think that now for an organization to be successful, do we need computers? Like, is it a necessity? (coughs) You mean like a laptop or a desktop or just... just, just, (coughs) Yeah, sure. sure.
0: Well, yeah. I, the reason why I hesitate is because I don't need a computer. You need a tablet,
1: mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that they're less expensive and they're more mobile and stuff like that. So, only not access because you can, can kind of tell within our our generation now how how much of a need it is for electronics, like mm-hmm. as as opposed to like a couple years back, like people didn't really need it as bad sure.
0: since technology is advanced. You know, we're we're so dependent on it. Um, well, and so and then this really comes to light with international NGOs, because in a sense, I, I don't think anyone would disagree with you. They might disagree with you on the international level. So if you're the group that's opening up a school in Nicaragua, do you provide cell phones for your staff and your volunteers so that you can better communicate with each other so that you can do a fundraising plan that's mobile based on mobile devices And you might think, well, you know, the community in Bluefields, no one has cell phones there, but maybe that would actually be part of your strategic plan for fundraising and for communication is to give every one of the staff a cell phone with a cell phone plan. So I think it is actually more pertinent or more controversial on the international scale. Whereas in the US, most people would say, yeah, I think that's needed. So if you think of resources, I like to think of that as the fuel, for the organization, like sort of what it needs to get things done. The systems are, if you think about like the, the human body, the circulatory system, like it's making sure that everything sort of flows and, and things are getting to where they need to be and, and the, the supply lines and supply chains are happening efficiently and similar to like the Red Cross example that part of the capacity is the systems. So you could have a lot of resources, you could have a lot of volunteers, a lot of money like the Red Cross but then the systems for distributing those resources or distributing those services <coughs> might be inhibited. The resources but then the systems are the things that get things moving around. Those are making sure that you have someone who's good at systems. So not only just resource distribution, but evaluation systems, fundraising systems. So have you ever tried to donate to an organization because, you know, someone made a pitch and you're like, oh yeah, that seems like something that I'd want to give to. And then you go online and you try to give and it says create a username and password and you're like, okay, I'll do this. And then you get to a part and it says, basically you get stopped all along the way. And then at a certain point, you're just like, it's not worth it. (laughs) I give up. And so they lose that or even if they're wanting to volunteer and they create these encumbrances, or even for my kids wanting to do swimming, the systems of the YMCA to get a kid into swimming classes were inefficient, and so you need the resources, but you also need the systems in place, and some people are really good systems people, and you want to attract those kind of people who can really help them make sure you have efficient systems so that, in a sense, a good system is one that you don't notice. Like you just show up and you do it and it goes smoothly. A bad system, you know it's a bad system because you notice it. So the BMB or BMB, has bad systems because you notice it. Whereas the, the ones that have really good systems, you actually don't notice it because you just fly right through and it's a seamless process. And so the it's critical, especially for nonprofits, to have systems that are high, that are very efficient and well well designed. And then the last part is the structures. And again, if you think of like the human body, the structure is the bones and the muscles. And it's the idea that, that your structure of your organization would, would be able to support what you're wanting to do but it also be nimble and flexible, so you don't want to have an organizational structure that's very rigid, like that sort of creates difficulty for expanding or shifting or pivoting in different ways, but you want one that can really allow for changes, so in terms of like volunteers, if you have a certain volunteer process and let's say you're in Bloomington and you say, well, our volunteers need to commit to one year. Of volunteering. You're like, oh, okay, that's great. But then you get a bunch of students who come in and say, well, I want to volunteer, but I can only commit to nine months. If you have a rigid structure that's not flexible or nimble or sort of adaptive, you can sit there and say, Oh, well, you can't volunteer because we need you to commit to a year. And Thomas is sitting here saying, Well, I mean, I, I'm committed, I want to be here. I just I leave in the summertime, so I can't be a volunteer. And so the structure is this idea of like, how are things set up? And is it can it support the organization, but also, is it nimble and flexible in different ways? And so that's sort of when we think of capacity, those are like the, the building blocks of it. And then really the question is for nonprofits is in, in this context of building capacity. And and why would a nonprofit want to build capacity? Like what would be some reasons. Right. Your nonprofit or a nonprofit that you're a part of, why would they want to build capacity? What is, how does that help the organization? Yeah. to reach more people. Okay, yeah. So you could expand the number of people who are receiving your services. So that would be one. What would be others? Okay, yeah. The overall user experience would probably be better and the outcomes would be better. If you're doing tutoring, the effectiveness of the tutoring would probably improve. <coughs> you can
7: become more competitive in the market. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we we forget that nonprofits are actually in a field, a competitive field, and there's other nonprofits and even private sector organizations that are providing the same services. And so, if you want to be competitive, having having higher capacity is, is going to help you, Maddie. It's more sustainable, you know.
3: There's people that are
0: going to continue the mission. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, so it it increases your likelihood of survival and longevity. And I even think about it, like, a lot of you, or some of you, in your proposals, you talk about we want to start here and then expand to other cities and, and other places, and so for expansion, like if you can have a high capacity organization here, and then you sort of have that model that then you can replicate the other places, and you already have the resources and the systems and the structure in place, and it's well refined here, and then you can expand to new markets, to new areas. So a lot of times, the nonprofits they start off in one local area and then they multiply into other cities and around. And so, But it, it all goes back to what's your mission, what's your vision? And in, in the sense is if you're passionate about what your organization is doing, you should be thinking, okay, how do we need to build our capacity to really fulfill and accomplish our mission? And so here's the challenge that most nonprofit organizations face is this, it's hard to raise money for organizational capacity. And so <coughs> if you're raising money, you want to go right to the programs. Here's what we do. Here's the, the direct services that we provide. And it's really hard to raise money for these capacity things, like the resources or like facilities, like we need office space to run our day-to-day operations or paying rent is a hard thing to raise money for if you have loans think borrow money to get startup to pay down loans like all these different infrastructure things are hard or even computers on one level it's hard because you're like well wait you're a a music program and why do you need why is your budget this much for new computers or even say the Bluefield's uh, Nicaragua group saying we want to buy cell phones like some of these things would increase the capacity of the organization but it's not directly apparent that it's Directly related to the services that they're providing, so in general, you tend to raise money for your programs, the specific things that you're doing, and you sort of go skim on the order, the capacity building types of stuff. And so, one of the ideas is this: you've all heard of venture capitalism, but there's this subfield called <coughs> venture philanthropy, and constantly. Began to look into this and discover this. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like you hear about VCs, especially in Silicon Valley, where you know someone pitches an idea to a venture capitalist and says, here's what we're doing, and we want to take it to scale. We want to we want to go big. We want to go global with this idea. And the venture capitalist sort of vets it, and when the venture capitalist decides to invest in your organization, they not only give you money, but they come. They basically become a managing partner with you in many ways. So they're saying basically, we like your idea. And we're going to put money down, but also with our money is going to come our assistance. We're going to help you strategize, we're going to help you begin to market this idea and sort of think through how to make it successful. Well, just like in the venture capital world, there's this world of venture philanthropists, which basically say, if you're a nonprofit profit organization that's, that's functioning well at this level, but you want to take it up to a higher level, there's these venture philanthropists who you can pitch your idea to, and they will help take your organization to the next level. And basically, they're going to give you the money to do it, but also the assistance and the the skills base and the knowledge base to help you do it. And it's something that oftentimes nonprofits are just unaware of. You kind of get sort of focused in on your own little world and what you're doing, and you don't realize that there's resources out there and people out there who actually want to help you succeed. And so I'm going to show a quick promotional video of one of these venture philanthropy groups. They're based in Canada, but there's other ones throughout the U.S., but it just gives you the idea of what's possible for your organization that's beyond just what might be in your local community.
5: Lift Philanthropy Partners works with not-for-profit organizations to make them more effective at delivering social impact in Canada. Our venture philanthropy approach is a multi-year process that enhances a not-for-profit organization's operations so it can be sustainable for years to come. We select organizations that focus on literacy and skills development and sport and physical activity so we can have a direct and positive effect on the health and productivity of Canadians and their communities. To do this, we identify not-for-profit organizations with a proven track record of social impact and a desire for growth. Then, we partner with these organizations for three years and together we develop a lift plan that focuses on measurement, accountability, and building capacity so the organization can deliver its programs to more people in more communities across the country. Our team works closely with the not-for-profit organization, providing a valuable combination of skills, expertise, resources, and funding to take the organization to a new level of outreach and impact. We engage a partner network of leading businesses, service providers, research, and other professionals to address the specific needs of the organization and help implement the lift plan. We also source financial investments, which we leverage with the value-added expertise of our partner network and LIFT team. Through this collaborative approach, we multiply the effectiveness of every dollar invested to create greater value for the not-for-profit organizations. This ensures the organizations we work with can create greater social impact than they ever could on their own. The end result? Stronger, not-for-profit organizations that improve the health and productivity of Canadians. Organizations that are essential to the social and economic well-being of our country. Learn more at lyftpartners.ca.
0: So I think what stands out to me with, with something like this is that it's encouraging because it's a demonstration of the professionalization of the field. If you're gonna sort of hire or invite Lyft to work with your organization, you would be exposed to a whole toolkit, an array of professionalizing skills for your organization, but also for you as a leader. And so to not tap those resources, is you're hurting yourself. And so, and that's just one example in in Canada, but there's many in the U.S. and I'm gonna show a couple more that just show you what's available for people in the nonprofit sector. And so a lot of times we just think fundraising. I need to fundraise and then go do my stuff. But maybe building capacity involves sort of expanding your network to include groups like this, where there are people in the professional private sector who basically come in and say, okay, let's take the things that we've learned in the private sector that actually could help you build capacity in the nonprofit. And so, in terms of building capacity, I want to walk through like how an organization builds capacity. And the first would be financial resources, and what are the different potential sources of funding that a nonprofit can get? What are ways that nonprofits can get funding? Yeah. Grants. Okay, grants from like, from who or what? From like the government. Okay, so government grants, any, any others? I don't know if it's called a grant, but like, they can get like a uh, loan. Oh, okay, yeah. A low or no interest loan for nonprofits. stay they shall. Notice. Donors, what kind of donors? Like individual donors, institutional donors? Okay, and so it could be both individuals, like you know, you could go to people in the classroom, or it could be institutional donors where you go to IU and say, here's our idea with IU. Think about corporations are very philanthropic, like they have a charitable arm, oftentimes, where they're you know, an in house foundation where they actually give back to the community, and oftentimes. Like if you think of Cook Medical, which is the organization here in Bloomington, they have a certain amount of funds set aside to invest in Bloomington. Or like Lilly Pharmaceuticals, specifically the Lilly Endowment gives to Indiana initiatives. Other examples of funding sources, yeah. Functional fees like ticket sales or... Okay, sales or yeah, so some sort of revenue generating aspect where you, if you have a program, you sell tickets or even a, a membership-based model where you know people will pay a small membership fee. So like the why. Any other examples of funding sources that might be available? Oh, the only other one that, that I thought of was reoccurring giving. So oftentimes when you think of individual donors, you, you go for that pitch and say, we give, but the more savvy organizations will set up a thing where there's reoccurring giving, where like, hey, just give $10 a month. And if you can get people signed up to give even just $10 a month, but it's, through their, it's automated through their credit card, it's a more consistent, Revenue stream versus like if you ask that one person and then you're like okay a year from now yeah we should go ask that person again and each year but then you're kind of like oh I don't want to keep asking and whereas if the person's interested and committed the idea of giving on a monthly basis at a smaller scale is feasible and so but as you're, and we're gonna do a whole class on fund development but it's just thinking through there's a variety of funding sources and I like what Cameron said of of thinking through like. Things like ticket sales, or program events, or different ways that your organization could actually get people to pay for services in some regard, or pay for different functions that you're offering. In terms of human resources, so we talked about financial resources, then there's human resources, and really it's you know it's thinking through who is your volunteer base, who are your interns. Another example is like retired executives. Basically, who are the people in the community that. <coughs> on a part-time basis, or on a full-time basis, or on a one-year internship basis. But some of the best nonprofits, the way that they function well is by having interns, like a one-year internship. So like even Teach for America, it's a nonprofit. Every teacher for Teach for America is an intern. You know, they, they get paid, but they're also functioning as interns. And so there isn't this whole slew of full-time employees for Teach for America. Most of their workers are one- or two-year internships. And that's why you can only do Teach for America for two years because labor laws say that, you know, internships, you can only do it for a maximum of two years. And what's interesting is that it's sort of designed so that you, you don't exploit people for like, well, you're always an intern. Think of working for a legal firm, law firm where, you know, you get to be an intern because you're like, okay, I want to get in. And they say, well, how about let's set you up for a five-year internship? And you're kind of like, ah, well, no. (laughs) Like, I I eventually want to get a job here. Like, I don't want to just be continually at this intern status, but for nonprofits, the laws are still the same, but you can actually use that as a model. You could say, let's recruit IU students so that the first year out of college that they would be interns for Bluefields and they would spend a year down in Nicaragua. They and you're not asking them to commit to a whole career of it, but it's a one year internship. But I think one of the most untapped resources is these retired executives. So people who have worked in industry for their whole career, and then they've retired, and they still have an interest in being involved and engaged, and yet they're not being connected with nonprofits. And so if you can find those sources of people and tell them, hey, here's what we're doing. Like I think of the good bar would be a a perfect example of, hey, we need people, but you try and find a 40-year-old executive who's going to help out. They're maybe not as available, but a 65-year-old executive has all the connections and the availability. So you have financial resources, human resources, and then this goes into this pro bono resources. So most of the management consulting companies out there like Booz Allen or McKinsey or all the the Boston Consulting Group, all these major consulting groups have a pro bono arm, where basically it's it's the social sector division of these consulting firms. And they're an incredible resource to nonprofits that are free, that will help the organization. So you think of like regular private sector companies pay thousands and thousands of dollars to have these management consulting companies come in and sort of help them grow their organization. Well, each of these consulting firms have a department that basically says, hey, we're gonna dedicate our exact same resources to the nonprofit sector to help the nonprofit sector organizations grow. And so in a way, these get undertapped or underutilized because again, the nonprofits aren't thinking. They think, oh, that's the private sector, they're evil, or they just want money or they're not in line with what I wanna do. But actually, each of them has this sector <coughs> orientation where if you can develop connections with these people, and again, if you're serious about your organization wanting to grow these pro boner resources are ones that could be really invaluable. And I'm going to show a clip about the McKinsey Company. And I'm going to show this partly because some of you aren't going to go into the nonprofit sector. Some of you are going to go into the private sector, or you're kind of deciding between do I do private sector or, or non-profit. In an organization like McKinsey and Company, could allow you to do both, where you go apply to work for McKinsey, but you say, "Hey, I want to focus on the nonprofit sector, and I want my <coughs> clients that I work with to be ones in the social." Sector. This this guy that's going to be talking, he's also an instructor for this online university called Philanthropy University, which is based out of UC Berkeley School of Business, and basically. It's run out of the business school, but it's for people who are in the philanthropic sector, the social sector. So it's this online university that's done through the University of California and also done in
7: cooperation with McKinsey Company and other professionals. So we'll watch a quick clip. Imagine you're a nonprofit working hard to meet your bold vision and change the world. The landscape keeps evolving. Your funders are getting more demanding and the day-to-day challenge of delivering for your constituents is keeping you up at night. You feel as if you need to step back before you take your next big step, but you don't have the time, the guidance, or the structure to quickly understand what are we doing well, where are we struggling, and what do we need to do better if we're going to succeed? I'm Doug Scott, a senior expert in McKinsey's social sector practice. McKinsey is a global consulting firm that works extensively with clients in the public, private, and social sectors, and we are actively engaged with foundations, NGOs, and nonprofits around the world. I'm teaching the Organizational Capacity course with Philanthropy University because I am a firm believer in the power of assessing and then investing in an organization's capacity to execute and grow, and to help organizations with great potential break the cycle of just keeping the lights on over the coming weeks, I hope that you will see the value of understanding your organization's capacity and learn about McKinsey's free-to-use assessment tool, the OCAP. The OCAP is designed to help your organization step back, reflect upon its strengths and areas for improvement, and help you take action today that will set you up for future success in fulfilling your mission. So I just I mean part of this for me is a lot
0: of times most nonprofits feel overwhelmed, like especially the directors. And when when you do these executive director interviews, you know, you'll hear sort of what their experience is in the nonprofit sector, and oftentimes they feel under resourced and overworked and like stretched too thin. You know, it might be interesting to ask them if they've ever tapped into any of these pro bono types services or if they've tapped into the private sector resources of just how to manage effectively. Like the other things that go on is that part of capacity building is leadership development. Again, that's not something that you tend to raise money for, like providing scholarships or funding for people to go to uh, conferences for leadership development. Like you're thinking that's not related to the services that we're providing, but if you can provide your employees with scholarships to go to leadership development type conferences, then that could be something that would be valuable to your workers, people working for you. And in many ways, it's connecting up with groups like McKinsey and, and they're gonna provide scholarships. Like, so you don't even have to raise the money for it. You can go to them and say, hey, you have this big conference, training conference. Could we send five or 10 of our employees to this conference? So again, it's thinking, when we talk about capacity building, there's two types of people out there. There's some where well, there's so many more resources out there. Like this is all we got. And there's others who are thinking there's unlimited resources. Like, you know, you have some who are the scarcity mentality of like, well, let's just get what we can. And then there's others who are this abundance mentality of like, there's tons of resources out there. We just need to tap into them. So I'm going to skip these two and then go on to interorganizational organizational resources. So if, if you think of resources within your community and you have potential collaborators. And so I want you to think about your nonprofit. That you're starting. When I talk about collaborators there's your competitors, there's your complementers and then there's the cross sector. and so the, the competitors are the ones who are providing the exact same service that you're providing in the same area and so they'll be your competition. Uh, and it could be other nonprofits it could be private sector organizations it could be the government and then there's the complementers the Complementers are like the organizations that you know let's say good bar is trying to help people get job skill training and then there's a job placement organization that actually you know takes in job job postings and sort of organizes complementing organization to the good bar and then the the third one is is the cross sector so if we're all in the nonprofit sector. What are other sectors in the private sector or in the government sector? So, again, like if you're a tutoring program, a cross sector collaborator would be public schools. You know, so they're in a different sector, they're in the public sector, government sector, and they could be a potential collaborator. So if you think of your organization, who are some of the competitors in your field? Competitors to your organization. Yeah. Record label. Record label. What do you are say? Are you talking about, like, our specific? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. record label would be. And are they in Bloomington, or? Uh, yeah.
6: Other, other, yeah. Uh, Organizations, what makes emission called and, and Emotion. Uh, does similar things try to help students, uh-huh. mostly college students able to find jobs outside of the university. Oh, interesting. So okay. Now we're taking our view in a different sector and not on focusing on students, and focusing
0: on the community. Oh, okay. There's similarity in services, but then the audiences are different. Okay, other other compet- Yeah, uh, ours is in the
3: state of California, and never- it. The state requires arts education in
0: schools, so we can always miss out on, like, a school teaching it rather than having to go outside program. Oh, okay. So the, the competitor would be the the schools in the school district. And so then the question is, you know, I, I put this under the, the label of collaborators... When you think about your competitors. What's the possibilities for collaborating with them? So the, the tendency is to think, oh, they're my competition, and so I need to beat them or I need to outsmart them. But like, in what ways could competitors be potential collaborators? Yeah, with whatever resources that organization is using to connect students to employment, we can ask them for advice. And mm-hmm. talk, you know. Because we're not you we're not competing for the same demographic. Sure, yes. yeah, yeah. So sharing resources and yeah, yeah. We could still use the record label in terms of recording in the studio. Okay. We just take over the management, transmit art marketing so they can still be use. I see. So, in, in that way, they're complimenting. Yeah, Eric. There's a couple of, like, local schools in Bluefield, that uh-huh. we were saying, like, how, like, we want to inspire kids to, like, continue to learn and, like, hopefully go to college one day. Mm-hmm. So even though, like, maybe, like, the public school system might be our competitor, we still want kids to, like, go eventually to college and, like, mm-hmm. try to educate themselves in the highest level they can. Sure. Yeah, I mean, another example with homeless shelters, again, the mindset is often like these are our competitors, and so it's like competition, but in Bloomington, when the homeless shelters, and there's a handful of churches in Bloomington that were offering shelter and food for homeless people, and they were all sort of doing their own thing, and then a couple of years ago, they came together and began to talk, and they said, well, hey, what if, you know, there's six of us organizations here, and we're all trying to do a homeless shelter, what if we each pick two months out of the year, where we provide the facilities and services for the homeless people to stay at our church or our location, and we do that for two months, and then it rotates to another organization, and then it rotates to another (coughs) organization, and so you had these six competing organizations wanting to serve the homeless people, and they're all doing it independently, but then when they coordinated their efforts, Basically said, let's rotate services, they were actually as a whole increase their capacity because it was less of a drain, and each organization could say, Hey, our months are January and July, and let's you know focus all of our energy on those two months, and then we know we get a break, and then the other organizations do it. And so A lot of times, it's thinking through, well, how can we actually work together versus having a posture of this is my organization and that's yours, and we're fighting for the same audience. So even if you have the same constituents that you're serving, yeah.
6: I think it's interesting and more effective in the nonprofit sector when you're doing a service or trying to give a service mm-hmm. to work together with organizations who have the same idea uh-huh. in the community if there's multiple organizations with the same idea there must be a need in that area sure. for that type of service yeah. so the more that you work together the more that you collaborate together the more effective the service will be as well as the more people will be served hopefully sure. yeah. but I think working in the private the private sector and you're more dealing with products and, and customers and stuff, yeah. Yeah. the competition is a little more back and forth than we do with Microsoft an Apple and stuff like that.
0: Sure. Know? Yeah.
6: And doing that, you know, they're both giving this very similar product, but they're in competition of, you know, what product you actually want. Sure. They're there, but doing the service, you know, you're just trying to help people out in yeah. the best way possible. And the more that you collaborate together with the same thing, the better off. The sure.
0: Yeah, well, and so in theory, yes, but what's amazing is people don't collaborate. I mean, you you get sort of very insular in your operations, and one, you don't know about what the other organizations are doing, are out there, or you know about them, and you just, you view them through this competitive lens, and so actually, a lot less collaboration happens than what could, and I agree with you that it would make them much more effective. There was, in terms of complementors, there's a, a group at Colorado State University who wanted to help the homeless people, you know, so there's a huge homeless population in, in Fort Collins, Colorado. What they ended up doing was they partnered with REI. So REI, you know, you can return your sleeping bags and stuff and they go to the garage sale and, and they have abundant supply of sleeping bags. So basically this nonprofit that was helping with homeless people partnered with REI to donate sleeping bags. And basically they came up with this agreement that if there, whoever needs a sleeping bag, REI will provide it. And so instead of the nonprofit having to go out and buy all these sleeping bags, they went to a complementary organization that had a product that actually fit the needs of the organizations directly. And also it makes REI look good. Like so REI is a, is a contributing partner and sponsor of this initiative. But it took someone in the nonprofit to think creatively of like, okay, what are the resources out there? And we can either go and raise money or we can go to a group like REI and say, hey, let's, let's work out a partnership and let's collaborate on this initiative. And REI wants to do stuff in the social sector, but they don't have the, the people in place to kind of know what's the best way to do this. So if a nonprofit comes up to them and says, here's the idea we have, then you've just done the job for them of basically providing them an opportunity to become engaged in the community. So, in terms of collaborators, it's thinking through what are all the resources in the community. Whether it's competitors, whether it's complementers, or even other sectors. So again, like schools are a good partnering organization, or even like the I'll say the faith-based sector. Like partnering with churches might be a sector that you wouldn't think of, but then if you look at what, actually there's a huge pool of volunteers. They have facilities. They actually have classrooms. So. If your organization is looking for space, a church or the faith-based sector might be a potential collaborator. So thinking through the different sectors. And in sort of the criteria that's used, this idea of relatedness. And so basically, as you're thinking about collaborators, these are the things that's, that need to line up. Do we have overlap in our mission? Like, you know, you don't want to collaborate with someone who's like doing something totally different or has a different mission or focus and is there overlapping constituencies, sort of like with the homeless population, or maybe there isn't an, an overlapping constituencies with like the Good Bar and this other organization, but there's similar services. And in organizational structure, Like, is it such that you could work together and not have to compromise what your organization structure is like and then geographic proximity? So a lot of these are just more, as you're thinking about, hey, we should collaborate with this organization, you want to make sure that there's overlap or relatedness in terms of of these functions. So we'll end there with building capacity, but the, the main idea is how do you help your organization accomplish its mission. So we're going to do now the elevator pitches for the community analysis, and we're just going to go through, start with team one, and basically you come up, you have a minute to give your pitch to sort of explain your community and why your organization is going to help your community. So we'll start with team one.
3: Okay, so my organization is Expand the Brand. We're a musician marketing firm based out of Bloomington, Indiana. We think that our program will be good for Bloomington because each year there's a new influx and like a surge of new creative musical talent that comes in and it gives them an opportunity to brand themselves and to become or jumpstart their career and maybe that's what they're looking for. So we think this is good. Bloomington's population is about 80,000 people but 40,000 of them are students which is our like primary target. So we think that because each year there is a new like crop of students it would be the best fit for us to target them um, just because it is fresh and it gives them an opportunity to start something that they can either keep in the Bloomington community and further, or they could take their music career other places and expand it to the rest of the world. Cool. Very good.
2: My organization is Indiana Access Opera, and we hope to bring more access to performing arts and opera through education and performing opportunities. And we chose Indianapolis as the city we'd be located in. Partly because there's already a large established arts community in Indianapolis, and there's also kind of a thriving nonprofit market, so we figured that we would be able to kind of thrive and be successful there. And there were also changes to school funding in the Indianapolis public schools in 2015 that caused the streamlining of music programs so if a school had lower enrollment they might have to cut some programs depending on how much funding they were receiving due to that so we felt that we would be able to provide a new education opportunity (coughs) where that might have lacked Okay,
3: hello everyone. I'm Allison Faye and I'm with the Food Life organization. Uh, we provide a healthy food and food education classes to the Detroit area. We decided to focus our organization in Detroit because it's considered a food desert, a city that lacks access to healthy food options. The poverty rate in Detroit is 20.5%, which is actually higher than the whole state of Michigan's poverty rate, which is 14.4%. Our plans to provide healthy food and class to teach them how to prepare these foods. We have provide opportunities for kids and families who create a self-reliant community that will be able to make healthy and smart choices to keep the poverty rate low. (coughs) We hope to strengthen the already existing organizations fight to the mission of solving food insecurity like St. Patrick's Food Bank or Sacred Heart because
4: we believe a healthy life is a successful life. My name is Kelsey and I'm part of my mission and the goal of our organization is to empower children who are recovering from the impacts of domestic violence through creative expression whether that be painting or sewing or whatever else. Each year in Monroe County there are over 550 cases of abuse filed and um, unfortunately these involve both women and children and over half of them never lead to a conviction. So despite that the number is actually even higher because many women don't even report their abuse and they could also be seeking help from one of the five organizations that Bloomington has to offer for women and children. So it's um, our goal to eventually partner with all five of these shelters, but we want to first start with the Middleway House. And for those who haven't heard of the Middleway House, it is a non-profit here in Bloomington whose goal is to end violence, both structural and interpersonal. For women and children, each year they house about 50 women and over 100 children. And it's our goal to work with these children to help them, like I said, create works and view their time at the shelter as a positive experience. The Middleway House has many programs for women to help them secure jobs and find homes and leave their partners but unfortunately they don't have the resources to offer programs geared towards children so that's where we come in we partner with them and help the children look back at their experiences middleweight house is a time of growth and accomplishment. Cool.
3: Hi I'm Stina. Um, Our nonprofit organization builds schools in Nicaragua and will stay there to teach the students practical skills that will be useful to have a successful career and a healthy lifestyle. We chose Nicaragua because their students spend 11 years at school on average, and their literacy rate is at 78%. These are both quantifiable measures that we are hoping to improve over time. Our nonprofit is building our first schools in a city called Bluefield, and Bluefield is right on the coast of the Caribbean Sea and has experienced great poverty and high unemployment rates due to drug smuggling in the area. Another problem that Bluefield faces is their lack of transportation. Right now, there is only one road that leads into Bluefield, so it makes the city accessible only during during certain times of the year. So, we are planning to teach relevant coursework that will help the citizens of Bluefield improve their transportation and learn other valuable skills to help create successful jobs so they don't have to rely on the drug money. Bluefield is also an ideal community to start with because they have two local universities that we are planning to partner with so our students can further their academic careers at a collegiate level. Okay.
2: So, imagine being told your whole life that you can make it if you just work hard enough. And then imagine working 40 hours a week at a job that you don't like, coming (coughs) home exhausted every night, and wondering how it's possible that you still can't manage to make ends meet. This is a reality for a lot of people in Bloomington. About 24% of people live under the poverty line, and about 6,000 people are living without homes, and they're stuck. But the Good Bar, my organization, can help them. We think that the road to success can start with who you know. Sometimes a conversation can turn into a connection, and that can turn (coughs) into an opportunity. The Good Bar connects people who want to do better for themselves with professionals that they might not normally meet through monthly networking nights at different cafes and bars in Bloomington. An evening at the Good Bar could lead to a new, more fulfilling profession and a better life.
8: Good morning. I actually wanna take you guys on a little trip. So imagine, you're walking on the sidewalk where thousands of names are etched onto those brass stars of fame. It's Los Angeles, a city where aspiring artists walk in search of making it big. While countless come from all places, an estimated 10 million people are already here in its backyard, consisting of various backgrounds and groups. The diversity in L.A. is apparent wherever you go. Law mandates that music, theater, art, and dance programs are to be provided for these children, but not everyone can meet these requirements. As Priya, we will be in outreach for these schools who are in need of assistance, giving the opportunity to children who are otherwise not given an outlet for their musical peers, and developing a child's musical interest is at the core of PREA's principles. Through our customized learning experiences, potential collaborations with other music programs, and overall community involvement, we will become a catalyst for the future musicians from the City of Angels.
6: Cool.
0: Very good. I think it's it's great. One, it's helpful for everyone else to know what the other groups are doing, what their teams are starting. But it's great to see your different personalities come out in this. I know some of you are fine being up here doing pitches, and others are like, this is going to be the low point of the class is having to get up here and do this. But the hope is that this is the opportunity to learn this and practice this and to do it with something you're familiar with. And so you guys are doing it well. This is what the pitches are supposed to be like. And for the pitches for Thursday, it's going to be focused on your program proposals. What I want the pitch to really focus on is sort of go down deeply into the actual program that you're going to do. So for like Good Bar, sort of explain what, you know, whatever the program that you focused on for your write-up, share deeply about that. Or if it's the group in Nicaragua, share deeply about one specific program. You only get a minute, but basically you're trying to sell this program versus any other things We're trying to say, here's all the different things we're going to do because that would be too overwhelming. So just focus on the one program that you did your write-up right up on.